Hello and welcome back to Silver Age Silver Screen, the podcast where we watch, discuss, and review sci-fi cult, superhero, and other stereotypically geeky films. I'm your co-host, Casey Jarms. And I'm your other co-host, Riley Thorne. And Riley, there are a lot of classic, classic pieces of science fiction. There's Alien, there's Star Wars, there's other things we've done on this show. And, I mean, when I think classic science fiction, I think of Dune, that science fiction novel about the worms and, like, the drug planet and the slow knives. I've never actually read the book Dune, but lots of people like it. And it's a good thing that finally, in 2021, we're getting a movie adaptation. If only there had been one earlier. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, it is crazy to think that a book, such a dense, heavy, beloved book like Dune, which was published in the mid-60s, it's amazing that it took it, what, it's been like almost 60 years to get a movie about it? Actually, no, that's not true. There was a couple straight-to-TV movies on the Sci-Fi Channel about 20 years ago. Yeah, but... One of them starring James McAvoy, actually. Okay, that's weird, like... Was that before or after he was an established quality actor? This was before Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, so a bit earlier than... Way earlier. Oh, wait. Come to think of it, there was an adaptation of Dune. Why didn't we think of that before? There was? Yeah. Who directed it? Was it a good director? Yeah, he is a great director. He did uh, Eraserhead, Elephant Man, and Twin Peaks, and Blue Velvet. And a lot of movies that just scream sci-fi action blockbuster. So you're telling me that David Lynch, the guy behind Twin Peaks and a bunch of great stuff, directed a Dune movie? That sounds amazing! Yeah. It wasn't, was it? No, this is one of the most despised adaptations of a book really ever put to cinema. This movie came out in 1984. As we mentioned, an adaptation of the first book in the sixth novel series written by Frank Herbert. They take a nearly 900-page book and condense it down to a two-hour movie. There's a lot to unpack with this movie. It's a bizarre, almost sort of montage through the best moments of the book without having a compelling story in and of itself. It clearly has a creative vision due to the fact that David Lynch is in the director's chair. And I've said this before, I do think that a lot of big potential franchise movies like this, I think they benefit a lot from having like this sense of quirkiness to them. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is the people making them must have like a certain grand sense of imagination about them and have a big, bizarre imagination in order to tell a story like this properly. I mean, I feel the exact same way about Peter Jackson going from bad taste and a bunch of cheap splatter horror to, out of nowhere, just makes fucking Lord of the Rings. Hey, you know who's a guy who has that grand style you're talking about who would be perfect to do a Dune movie? Who's that? Dennis Villeneuve, or Hover's... Name is pronounced. The guy behind Blade Runner 2049. Give him that split into two movies longer than this, and it will be amazing, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Denis Villeneuve is one of the best working directors today, and 
He said all the way back during the release of Arrival, I believe came out 2015, it was announced that he was in the early production of a Dune adaptation, and it was a childhood dream of his to do it, and he finally got his chance. But it's funny because his was the first really production to go well for any filmmaker whatsoever when it comes to adapting this work. Wasn't the modern Dune movie in development for like 20 years? Oh yeah, most definitely. I mean, the film rights were purchased by film producers way back in the early 70s. But it took them years and multiple different directors and writers, producers, production crews to before we actually landed on the David Lynch adaptation. One of those crews actually, after their version of the film was scrapped and they were going in a different direction, they were all basically like, all right, well, we need to find work. Uh, what's this other guy doing? Uh, what's his name? Ridley Scott making a movie called Alien. All right, let's do that. And the production crew of Alien almost made this movie. Like, five years earlier, albeit, but... I'm yeah. glad that they made Alien instead, because... I mean, maybe this would have been better under them, but... Alien's better than this! Eventually, one of the producers threw out the name David Lynch, who was, an, at the time, an upcoming filmmaker who had started gaining a lot of traction, at first with the art house film communities, what with his debut film, Eraserhead, and then his critically acclaimed Oscar-nominated follow-up, Elephant Man. And he was even, at the time, in consideration to make Star Wars Return of the Jedi, but turned it down for reasons that we'll get into, obviously, as it goes on. So he was hired due to his status as an influential up-and-comer, and he was basically given $40 million to tell this story. A story based on a book that he had not read. Oh, God, he hadn't? Nope. And a movie that the final product he would eventually go on to completely disown. Yeah, I can see that. Because you said 40 million budget, made 30 million back. David Lynch, he's a good director. I have never seen such an awful movie from such a good director. And it was early in his career, but yeah, I can understand why he's going Alan Smithy on this one. Because holy, oh god, how was this a Lynch movie? It's yeah. just so, ugh. You know, the thing we do on this is that we like kind of recap the film and talk about it. And we'll try to do that, I guess, but I don't know how it's going to go because I'm still not really sure what even happens in this movie. Like you said, it's a highlight reel from the book of just scenes without context or explanation or much of a narrative between them. Half the time this film is just gibberish. Yeah, it was funny. One of the directors that they had hired before David Lynch... This is a bit of uh, uh, oversimplification of what happened, but he was in a production meeting with the producers, and the producers were like, okay, so this movie's going to be two hours, right? And he said, no, it needs to be at least ten hours. And they go, nope, you're fired. <laughs> I mean, I know even this version, David Lynch, from what I've read, was pushing for over three hours, Yeah. but they took away Final Cut rights from him. Yeah, he signed on to the project knowing a brief idea of the story and he said in order to tell that he wants to tell it over two films. 
And the original cut of this movie was three and a half hours, roughly. But then, again, due to studio pressure during filming, he crammed it all into one movie, and they did not give him final edit, which is a huge blow to him in particular, because he is, say what you want about him, he is one of the most creative motherfuckers in Hollywood's history ever. For nothing else, it's creative. And his primary desire is creative control. Taking that entirely away from him in a project that he doesn't know too much about and making him rush the storytelling, it just was set up to fail from the get-go. And it is strange to me to see how much of a failure this movie was and is. Like, the only positive thing I have heard people say about this movie and that I really have to say about this is the production design is creative and the costumes are really good. It's fine. Like, it doesn't look awful, but no. just like we said, it's incomprehensible. Yeah. There are things that I assume are big parts in the book that make sense and have these emotional weight behind them, but they just don't work. Like, for instance, I had to look up a few times. Okay, was this in the book so I can understand what's going on? Like, Sting, the musician Sting is in this movie. He plays a character named Fade. I don't know why they got Sting, but Fade, like, he's set up as this villain. Like, at the start of the movie, we're skipping ahead a bit. Paul is, like, having nightmares, prophetic visions about fight for him. And then Fade's just kind of there for a couple scenes after that, doesn't do anything. And then they have a fight and Paul kills him. Mm -hmm. So that's Fade in the movie. In the book, like, Fade is also destined to be an ubermensch, and his uncle is training him to take over as emperor, and there's a subplot where Fade tries to kill the Baron so he can usurp power. And in the final duel, the cult people, the, like, old bald ladies, I forget their name, there's a bunch the of confusing names. Yeah, that give Paul a way to kill Fade easily, and Paul chooses against it so he won't be in their debt. Like, okay, there's a lot of complex characters and emotional resonance. And in this movie, that guy, he's played by Sting and he fights Paul at the end. At least he wears a sick codpiece, though. My God. Yeah. My God, that man is gorgeous. The book dude... It might be good. I haven't read it, but this movie just fails utterly at being an epic. Which is weird to me, and it, first off, side note, I really want to read these books now. This movie is a horrendous failure, but goddamn do I want to read these books now. That and the Denis Villeneuve movie. But it is shocking to me how much of a failure this movie was, because this book was a huge inspiration for a lot of science fiction. This, in conjunction with Flash Gordon and a lot of old-timey Republic serials, was a huge inspiration on Star Wars. And Star Wars and this, Dune, the book, were big inspirations on Alien. And this would later go on to inspire Ridley Scott to continue on to go make Blade Runner, which Blade Runner made The Matrix. Dune is just so important in pop culture. And not even like movies taking off, like Beetlejuice. There's scenes in Beetlejuice that are inspired by Dune. And the costumes for this movie went on to inspire the 1989 Batman costumes. Dune is such an influential story when it comes to science fiction. And this came out the year after Return of the Jedi. And yet 
It's such a horrendous failure in colossal, fundamental ways. It was meant to be this bigger franchise series, but the studio cut the story to be one cohesive film, and it just screwed it all over. Which brings me to my... The opening scene reminded me a lot of Zardoz. There's just a giant head floating through space, giving exposition for no reason. I'm not gonna lie, I had to pause the movie for like 10 minutes at the five minute mark. <laughs> because there is so much explicit detail, so much exposition and info dump and plot just thrown at you so quickly, all with complex names that it's so hard to keep track. And I was, I watched Tenet over the summer and was able to keep track. Like, kind of, I had to pause every once in a while. The thing that like Star Wars does is they establish this world, they lead you into this world slowly so that you gather information. Oh, there's spaceships and droids and rebellion, empire. There's lightsabers, the Force, Jedi. It leads you all into that. But no, it's like in the first five minutes, it's like it's the year 10,191 AD. There's a planet called Arrakis that's owned by the Atreides. There's Spice Melange. There's the Fremen. There's uh, the Baron. And who these people are and what it's just blatantly stated to you in the first five minutes. I, and it is confusing as fuck. I don't know what's worse, though. The fact that the first 20 minutes of this film are nothing but exposition, or the fact that even despite it, that this film is incredibly confusing. Yeah. The film is unbearably dull at the start because it's just exposition, and it isn't enough. I don't know. So yeah. let's just get so... into this. So what even is the plot of this? There's a planet, it's called Arrakis or Dune, depending on who you ask. There's a drug that can only be found on this desert planet called the Spice or the Melange that gives you psychic powers that they use for space travel. This planet is owned by the Empire and it used to be in possession of the Harkonnens, but the Empire wants to destroy the Atreides family so they give the planet from the Harkonnens to the Atreides so the Harkonnens can launch a surprise attack and kill the Atreides as part of the Empire's gambit. Okay, sure, that's a lot of information real quick. Yeah, the main character of this film is the son of Duke Atreides. Uh, his name is Paul. Now, yeah, you have all these complicated sci-fi names and then just fucking Paul. And then wait until we get to fucking Duncan Idaho. <laughs> Duncan Idaho. Like, what What even is that name? Well, think about it this way. This is 10,000 years in the future, basically. So basically, that name is like a millennia old. And well, someone... eight. Whatever. You know what I mean. Point is, what I'm trying to say is, in the future, for all we know, Duncan Idaho may be a really cool, old-school classic name. That's just badass in this time period. What? So the name is something like Cairo Caesar, like an old place and then an old name? Yeah. Or would be Caesar Cairo. That's actually a cool name. Yeah. So basically Paul Atreides in the book is a teenager who is at the cusp of adulthood. It's, this, it's a coming of age story about space politics and intergalactic war and you know, giant worms and shit like that. I don't know. I mean, the usual stuff that teenagers go through. 
But Paul in the books is this young man on the cusp of adulthood looking for answers. He is having visions. He's caught in this weird, complex political system. So many things are changing so quickly. And in this movie, they made him a full-grown adult, played by Kyle MacLachlan. I'm so used on the show to seeing teenagers played by 30-year-olds. I don't even care well, anymore. Very true. Like, I don't necessarily have a problem that he's played by an adult. My problem is that he is not portrayed as a young man at all. Like, in the sense that, oh, he's still in training for, like, fighting and stuff like that. But... Paul is the most boring character oh, ever God. in this movie because he's, if you take away all the quest for knowledge and the coming of age stuff that is Paul's character, all you're left with is just a really smart, handsome guy that's good at everything and knows what to do in every instance. And the only conflict he has in his life is, oh, I wonder what they mean by that. Oh, I wonder how to do this. Oh, look, I just did it. Oh, yeah. I mean, Kyle MacLachlan... This was his first movie role, which props to him. He did, I don't think he does a terrible job. He does the best job he can, given the bland script and the unfortunate, I'm sorry, David Lynch, but terrible direction. There's no complexity to his character. He's just a guy that's really good at everything. And then what? how does this story end? Oh, he's perfect now. I've that's what, not... a, what a big evolution, you know? I could not be bothered to give a shit about Paul, or really anyone in this movie, but Paul's the main character, and he was just so uninteresting. He's just a guy. I really can't think of any part of this movie where there's some emotional depth to the guy. And also, he's a bit of a Mary Stew, to the point where he's... I don't even remember the word they use for it. He's an ubermensch. He's been genetically bred over generations to become the messiah, like by this weird cult that his mother was a part of. I don't know what the word is. The Kwisatz Haderach or something like that. I'm gonna keep saying Ubermensch because that's what it is. He's like a super being because of years of breeding to make him that. I'm just gonna call him Space Jesus. So, well, I mean, yeah, he's Space Jesus. The sequel is called Dune Messiah. Yeah. The opening scene when we see Paul Atreides, he's just sitting there studying the new planet. His father, the Duke, is going to be given Arrakis to govern the mining colonies there. To give the entire empire their space-traveling spice melange. Which begs the question, how did they get the spice melange in general if it's only on this one planet? I don't know, that's actually a good point. Yeah. Also, why can't they recreate it on other planets? Like, I assume that it's explained in the books, but it isn't. Like, in this, it's just, like, a powder. Like, recreate yeah. it. Exactly, like, chemical compounds and shit. He is trained by these three guys, Dr. Yue, this guy named Gurney, played by fucking Patrick Stewart. Oh, Patrick Stewart. He's a great actor. He's a great science fiction actor. He's barely in this movie, but he's in a few scenes at least. Yeah, he's basically Paul's combat trainer, basically. He's yeah. a physical combatant trainer, which is weird to think of Patrick Stewart in that role, having known him for decades as Professor X and Jean-Luc Picard. What is interesting to me is, you know who plays him in the new movie? Uh, it was Josh Brolin, right? Yeah, yeah. 
They go from Patrick Stewart, Sir Patrick Stewart, to Josh Brolin. I mean, they're both great actors, but yeah, those yeah. are two very different vibes. Exactly. Yeah. So he's Can we talk trained. about uh, the training with Patrick Stewart for a minute? Oh, yeah. Because it introduces this mechanic that Paul has this shield aura, like he has a force field, or all the soldiers have, really. Although it's only visible in this scene for some reason. It protects them from bullets, like, because... Fast-moving projectiles bounce off, but slow knives, like the knives going slow, pierces the shield and allows you to kill. And I only understood that because I saw someone explaining it on Reddit. Like, the film doesn't explain it very well. No. But the point is, they have force fields around them. Oh, God, they look like fucking Roblox characters. Just boxes around their torsos and arms. Yeah, that feeds into one of my biggest confusions and problems with the movie is there are on occasion the practical effects in this and the sets and stuff it's very good like when i say good i mean like you can tell people had a vision and they were bringing that out and on screen that's cool the green screen stuff and some of the other practical effects god awful holy shit in particular the space travel stuff to me, I don't know what you thought, that looked like garbage to me. I was just mostly confused because the spice, if you use it for too long, it mutates you into these fucking Cronenbergs that are used to pilot the ships. The space travel is just focusing on one of these abominations hovering as, I don't even know what happens, lasers shoot out and then space bends. Is that what the is that what that fucking fetus thing was? Someone who used the spice too long? I assume from context. Huh. The main side effect of using spice a lot is that your eyes turn blue. And not like blue contacts, as in they went back and paint dropped blue on all the frames where there's a character who's used spice and it looks not good. Yeah, no. Everyone's glowing blue eyes very clearly yeah. post effects. The film begins with the Emperor being met by one of these Cronenberg monsters who looks like a giant fetus dick and he's like, yeah, we need to kill Paul Atreides and eventually Paul has the vision of that meeting and is like, oh, they're gonna kill me, blah 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 blah. But the thing that really stuck out to me was the space travel. I've seen multiple videos of how they achieved the space travel scenes in Star Wars, like the exterior of the ships flying through. Basically, they put the ships on green screens and they move them accordingly, but then they key out the blue screen and they place it over the actual background that they're going to use. But on occasion, what that does is, if you look closely on the earlier Star Wars movies, they have a like a faint black outline on the ships because that was what was cut off from the blue screen it's not as noticeable if you really look for it you can see it but in this movie the green screen king is done horrendously and i understand that it's a product of mid 1980s but guess what star wars came out like seven years earlier and did a much better job technologically speaking with that so again there are a lot of very convincing practical effects, some practical effects that haven't aged well, and other practical effects and digital effects that look horrendous. And it's just really bad. Another point that I wanted to mention was this whole thing with the shields. 
Basically, it's written in the book and sort of portrayed in this movie that they all have force fields around them. Mm -hmm. Shields, right? Well, there's a thing called, what was it, the weirding mechanic? Weirding machines? Whatever. Weirding. Weirding. That's what it's called. It's called weirding. Which, in the book, what weirding is, is basically because everyone has a personal force field around them, it's rendered long-range weapons obsolete. Fast-moving artifacts cannot harm you. Which leads to melee combat being mostly effective and utilized in this universe. So that's why a lot of the characters have swords and knives and stuff like that, is because that's really the only way of killing other people. Now, in the books, weirding is essentially an incredibly effective form of martial arts. And it's like the deadliest martial art in this universe. But in this movie, during the production, David Lynch said something to the effect of, no way I'm making a kung fu movie in sand. So he made weirding just poorly designed guns that you have to scream at certain frequencies to shoot. Yeah, like they use their psychic powers by shouting into... It looks more like a camera than a gun, really. Just shout the keyword in and then it shoots out sonic blast and breaks stone. Which, again, completely breaks the rule, fundamentally breaks the rules of Frank Herbert's novel. But what's funny is that one of those words that they use, just as a little personal note, one of the words they use to shoot the guns, they say Chaska. Chaska is the name of one of the actors that was in my last film. Was she named after this scene in Dune? I don't know. He, but I don't know. I don't know your actors. But I just thought it was funny. I was like, hey, that's, hey, it's Chaska. (laughs) So there's early on in this movie, just a lot of scenes that just happen. Like, for instance, because Paul is the Ubermensch and he wasn't supposed to be born because his mother ran away to marry the Duke or whatever. Because of that, one of the nuns, the bald nun cultist ladies, they're called the Bene Gesserit, I looked it up, the Reverend Mothers. They go to him and torture him by making him stick his hand into a box that makes him feel pain. That was a scene that happened, and okay. Oh god, do you know what's the absolute most nonsense scene in this movie? The introduction of Baron Harkonnen. This intimidating main villain who's a fat guy with a bunch of really awful acne who just sits in a throne, and as he's talking to his minions, he like, Ooh, there's a traitor in House Atreides who's going to help me kill them. And then, for some reason, he just starts flying. He floats up to the ceiling and then ink rains down from him onto one of his nephews who has like a reverse mohawk. And then the Baron lands in front of him and rips out the plug that keeps the blood from going out of his heart. And, and then the nephew just... Guys, I, I, I don't understand why this is happening. What What is going on? The Baron could have conceivably been a very, very intimidating villain. At one point in one of the previous productions, someone threw out the name Orson Welles to play him. That would have actually been good. Although, I feel like Orson Welles would have been very angry 
to be on this film. Okay, so here's the scene where you have really bad acne, then you fly up and you pour down ink on someone. I'm sorry, no, I, I quit this movie. I don't want to. The guy that plays the Baron, he's a lot of fun. I'll give him that. The Baron is a lot of fun in this movie, but he's not intimidating or imposing. He's just creepy, just unsettling because he's incredibly fat. He has zits and shit and he's sweating all the time he's spitting everywhere he bathes in oil and then he starts flying out of nowhere and he's laughing and screaming in a high-pitched voice and it's like what is happening also side note you know his lackey with the big eyebrows yeah there's like three different characters in this movie who have giant eyebrows which is confusing that is a character trait that you shouldn't give to multiple people yeah, no. The main one who kind of is like his right-hand man who mm-hmm. isn't afraid to show some disrespect to him. Where he's like, the plan. And the Baron goes, my plan. And he goes, the plan? That guy is played by Brad Dourif, who would go on to play Chucky five years later. And then like ten years later, went on to be, what was it, Wormtongue? He was in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he played Dream of Wormtongue. Yeah, yeah. He almost played Scarecrow. Had... Tim Burton stayed on Batman Forever, he would have played uh, Scarecrow, allegedly. You know, you don't really say that an actor is slumming it with this role when that actor's been in just terrible films over the course of his career, which Brad Dorif has. Yeah, Brad Dorif is slumming it in this film. Yeah. This is bad even for him. And it's certainly terrible for Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Final thoughts, Baron... So fucking stupid, so ridiculous. Though, I will say, the only good thing that came out of that is I could not fucking wait for the Baron to die. Like, yeah, but his death is lame! Like, yes. That motherfucker is so vile and creepy. It's not frightening or imposing at all. And personally, I would have preferred a little bit more of that. But, goddamn. So, then we get the side characters. All these incredible... Characters that have so much potential for depth and interest. Like Gurney just kind of gets angry a lot and then disappears for a couple scenes. Then shows up two years later and oh, now he's on our side now. Yeah, Duncan Idaho, who honestly, the only good thing he has going for him in this is that he has a cool name. I know that he's really big in the books, like looking at his Wikipedia page. Only character to show up in all six novels. Like, he's a fan favorite. What does he even do in this movie? He's just the right-hand man of Duke Leto who dies. Oh, and they got Jason Momoa in the 2021. But I'm glad Jason Momoa's not in this one. A, because he would have been baby. And B, because he would have been wasted. Oh, yeah. Uh, Basically, the only thing Duncan does is... He goes to Arrakis before the Atreides so that he can do some recon about these natives that live there called the Fremen. He later on discovers that there might be legions more of them than they were expecting and they have so much more power on the planet than ever. And then he suggests the idea that maybe they team up with the Fremen to win the war against the Harkonnens. And then on the assault on the city, he just... Rushes into a crowd of enemies and dies, presumably. And that's the end of Duncan. So yeah, the Atreides family, they go to Arrakis and 
Paul has a bunch of weird visions. He tries some spice and he trips the fuck out. Like, this whole movie is just people fighting over a psychotropic drug, which is just great. There's a scene where, like, a robot flies into Paul's room to kill him and he saves the maid. Okay. There's a scene where we're properly introduced to Dr. Yue, who is important because he's the traitor, but they don't really go too much into why he's betraying them or his backstory. Whatever. There was an interesting subplot that I thought they were setting up with Lady Jessica, a.k.a. Paul's mom. She was told to only give birth to daughters. Yeah, because the son will be the Ubermensch. With the intent on they can marry off the daughters of the Atreides to the sons of the Harkonnens. At least this is what I gathered from these mess of a plot. So that they could intermarry and bring an end to the conflict of the two houses. But then Lady Jessica gave birth to a son because that is totally in her control, apparently. Really, what this film should have been is just about Paul wooing Sting. Unite the two families. Mm -hmm. You saw the way Sting looked at his uncle wearing that fucking codpiece. Oh yeah, what the fuck is that scene? There's a scene where after the Baron, I don't even remember what, he flies around laughing, doing evil shit, and then fucking Fade, Sting's character, walks out in this Speedo codpiece, and the Baron just stares at him like, like, what? Okay, sure. Don't know what that added. Don't know why that's in this movie. Okay. It's so bizarre. And again, getting back to why the Baron was wasted as a villain, again, he's not intimidating. And that partially has to do with that scene in particular, where he's rejoicing that he's still alive because, as we'll go on to later, there was an assassination attempt. He's like flying around the room in circles, laughing in a high-pitched, overacted voice. And it's like, this guy's our villain? Are you fucking serious? Let's talk about what I think is the most cringy part of this movie, and that is the internal monologues. Holy shit. I've never seen so many internal monologues in a film. And it isn't just one character. It's everyone is constantly narrating their thoughts because they don't act well enough in this movie for the audience to get either. And the story's not written well enough to incorporate all this information. So they just have the characters think it in their heads and and have a voiceover. And that's confusing in a movie about psychic powers because half the time I'm like, Oh, wait, is Paul hearing these internal monologues? Oh, no, no, it's just a lazy plot device? Okay, sure. So, again, it's like, it's a lazy plot device, as you say. It's also confusing because there are times where you don't even know who's speaking. But then, it's an added level of cringe that most of them are whispered. Where Paul is like, Oh, no, I wonder why they're trying to kill me. It has to do with the spice. The spice what do the worms have to do with the spice? It has to mean something. It's so creepy and so unsettling. Like, what the fuck were they thinking? So like halfway through this film, the Harkonnens finally attack and they kill a bunch of characters I don't care about. Duke Leto, Paul's father, he gets captured and Dr. Yue, his personal physician, who is the traitor, who 
betrayed them, but also he wants to kill the Baron. I assume his motivations make more sense in the book. He, like, implants a poison tooth. The tooth. The tooth. The tooth. The tooth. Internal monologue. He implants a poison tooth so that Leto can, as he dies, like, chomp down and kill the Baron. And in return for this, Dr. Yue allows Jessica and Paul to escape. Cool. Yeah, and in doing so, they use this... What is it even? It's a voice that's been used by the Reverend Mothers to hypnotize people. I don't what know. is that? Like, they you, they hypnotize them using a certain vocal frequency. It's kind of tied into weirding. I don't know. They hypnotize these people. They're basically being taken out to the desert where they die from the elements and being consumed by the worms because the worms respond to very, very acute vibrational frequencies in the sand. And we don't know anything about them. Don't know why they're doing this. Blah, 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 blah. But they're basically sending them out there to be eaten by sandworms. Which, as Dr. Evil from the Austin Powers movies said, the way to assure killing them is by not watching them die, but putting them in an elaborate plan and assume that they won't escape and everything will work out fine. Honestly, Baron Harkonnen feels like an Austin Powers villain. He's fat bastard put in the plot role of Dr. Evil. Basically. He even has the red hair. Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, he's not played for laughs. He's played for gross-out drama. And it's just nick. Paul and his mom, Jessica, they take out the guards that are taking them out to the desert and fly the ship to the South Pole, where it's a forbidden zone. And as soon as they, you know, crash the plane, their entire kingdom was attacked, their families destroyed, his father was killed, like, his entire legacy has been usurped. Paul literally does not feel anything. Yeah, he's just He even states that. He goes, why do I not feel anything? That leads into one of my other problems that we mentioned earlier. It's not a cohesive, linear, dramatic sequence. It's just, oh, this happened in the book, so we'll show it. And this happened right after? All right, let's do that. It just feels like things happen and things are said by characters because they happen in the book. There's no natural flow to the events in this story. As soon as one big thing ends, there's no lull. There's no sort of resolution to that or aftermath to the situation. It just immediately jumps into the next thing because... We have two hours and we got to get this plot rolling. So from there, they immediately start trying to escape these sandworms and find their way to an underground cave system where there's a shit ton of Fremen. And those are the people that Paul has been constantly seeing in his dreams. They threaten violence. Then the mom grabs one by the neck and says, I can teach you how to do this. And they go, all right, can you be our reverend mother now? Okay, sure. Paul literally meets the girl of his dreams, a girl he's been having visions of, who's like a Fremen princess, and they get married. They have great chemistry together. It happens all off screen. Yeah, like the five lines of dialogue she has. Oh, there was a scene. We skipped it. Duke Leto gets brought to Baron Harkonnen, who like spits on him when he's chained up because the Baron's a fucking pig yeah. and he tries the poison toothing and it just it just fails yeah he kills brad Dorif instead because he's out of it he's like confused dazed he thinks that he's the baron so he 
kills him. Yeah. There's a scene. You know, earlier I said the pulling a guy's heart plug out was weirder. That was wrong. There is a scene where the Baron tortures one of his prisoners by, like, giving him a poison that will kill him and then, like, handing him a cap with a rat duct tape to it and said, you must milk this cat daily and drink the milk as an antidote because you're my prisoner. I did what? I, what? I don't even understand who that character was. Like, who was that guy? He was in a couple scenes. Don't know his name. He had don't big eyebrows. Yeah, yeah. Like the other guy with big eyebrows. Don't know his name. Don't know his significance. But he gets... He gets... <laughs> he gets the cat to milk. I don't understand. Yeah. Since this is... We're just bouncing back and forth about what we hate because there's really nothing else I like besides the interesting production design. Not saying it's good. Not saying it's great it's interesting for nothing else and this entire movie is interesting to study and analyze but goddamn, is it horribly paced and the tension is atrocious like david lynch is great at making tension in his own like weird uncomfortable style of tension you know like maholland drive blue velvet twin peaks that kind of thing just something is off here and it's uncomfortable but that doesn't translate well to blockbuster sci-fi action franchise. Yeah. You know? Honestly, nothing in this movie ever feels unnerving. Nope. When Paul goes to later conquer a sandworm, which, why does he even do that? I don't know, because he's the messiah and doing impossible things. He rides a sandworm and they ride him into battle at the end. I... Okay, it makes about as much sense as them making Jessica go through a premature birth so that they can transfer the soul of their dying reverend mother into her newborn. So later this three-year-old has all the psychic powers of a reverend mother and can take out the baron. I, I, oh, yeah, yeah. By this point in the movie, I'm not even really questioning. I'm just like, oh, sure, why not? Go on. I mean... Imagine if, like, Star Wars, if they made the entire original trilogy into one movie, they told this entire epic story in two hours, and they just had to cram and rush all this lore and information and stuff like that, it'd be pretty fucking weird. It would be like, okay, we don't have time for any of the characterization of books, so we're skipping all the... I'm your father stuff like so he trains with Yoda and then we cut to the throne room where he says I'm of Jedi like my father before me and then we do both Death Stars exploding as once and then party with the Ewoks okay good is this comprehensible no good like but the point is if you condense something as epic and grand as like a science fantasy epic like Dune and like Star Wars into such a small time frame yeah, you're not going to have enough time to tell the story properly. So all that's left is for people to, like, throw out, like, oh, yeah, we need this happen. Like, in order for the climax to make sense, we have to have Paul's younger sister, who has a premature birth, but she's also, like, 
a hundred years wise as a three-year-old and she was given a premature birth so that the mom can become a reverend mother of the Fremen. And it's like, what? The point of what I'm trying to say is, I imagine that this would make a lot of sense if they were actually given the proper amount of time to tell the story. But they're not. You thought the first half was rushed. The entire second half, after the Harkonnens attack the city and take over, the entire rest of the story, over two years of plot and story, is just rushed through. Completely. Yeah. And it's major plot points. Yeah, it's like, okay, so Paul has been adopted into the Fremen, and he's going to train them in his smart science white man training so they can fight off the Parkonins. Okay, it's five minutes later, three years have passed, they've completely stopped all spice production out of the planet, and now the Harkonnens are leading a big armada to the planet so they can kill Paul. What? What? That was too rushed? Uh, well, did I mention that Patrick Stewart is still alive? <laughs> he has long hair, which, that made me laugh. I don't know about you, but Patrick Stewart's still bald on the top of his head, but he has hair on the sides. So he just grew that out. <laughs> Yeah, that's ridiculous. I don't know. So, there's a big final battle that is incredible. Sorry, we forgot to mention the Water of Life. Oh god, what the fuck? So, essentially, there's this prophecy on Arrakis. Basically, there's going to be a messiah, a Jesus, Uh an Ubermensch. And he's gonna... The Kwisatz Haderach. And he's gonna lead them in jihad, which is a word that... I mean, it is what it is. It's a holy war, but that has different implications in no. modern day than 1984. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So basically, there's this whole prophecy of this Messiah coming. So many people believe that they're the Messiah, so they drink the water of life and they die. It's never explained what this water of life is, what it means to become awakened, what the hell this ritual is. He just gets tied up in the desert, drinks this blue liquid, wakes up as Jesus. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And he comes to the revelation that the worms are the spice. I actually had to look that up because I don't know what that fucking means. What do you mean the worms are the spice? Oh, in the book, the spice is made from ground up worm larva. That's what he's talking about. Who gives a shit? I don't know. Yeah. This movie, I, I had to stop watching halfway through because it was so boring and confusing. And then I came back and I realized, oh shit, I have to watch the rest of it. Another thing that really confused me was Paul's prophetic dreams, which is a good idea. It's just not done well. It's just like every few scenes, something will happen. Like Max von Sydow's character. Max von Sydow's in this movie. Yes, it has a great cast. Yeah. And Max von Sydow is showing them how to wear these suits that retain water and help you survive in the desert for weeks on end. Yeah, by putting a tube up your nose, which they have in all the scenes and it's dumb. He goes to Paul to help tell him how to do put it on properly, and he's taken aback. He's like, that's how the Fremen wear these outfits. How did you know that? And Paul just goes, well, I don't know. I just wore it like that. And they go, no, it's a little too specific to just kind of instinctively know that. And it's like moments like that. He has so many scenes where he'll see something Thing, but it's never addressed how or why he's seeing them. And then there are other scenes where he'll just know shit. 
and it's never really explained how or why he knows shit other than just fucking telepathy. I don't yeah. fucking know. Yeah, he has psychic dreams about his eventual girlfriend and Sting and a second moon, which I don't... What was that, the second moon? I don't know. It's his, like, Usla is like, that's the name the Fremen have for the second moon, and that's the name they give him just by the happenstance. Sure, why not? I don't... I don't fucking know, man. I don't know. So anyway, there's a big battle against the Harkonnens. It's boring. The three-year-old uses her psychic powers to throw the Baron out a window into the mouth of a sandworm. Cool. And then finally, the Emperor shows up and Paul says, I'm gonna be the Emperor now. And then he has a knife fight with Sting and kills Sting. And then it starts raining, which means he's the Messiah because of the prophecy. Yep, and that's pretty much where the movie ends. Um, they also rode a shit ton of sandworms into battle, and that's really it. Yeah. So it was played off as this big thing that Paul was able to ride a sandworm. But then at the end, everyone does it. Everyone's able to ride a sandworm. And it's like, what? What, what? That's my question. What? What? What the fuck? And also, another thing. I would like to go on a little rant about this ending for a second. So, Paul is basically God mm-hmm. at the end of this story. He's a deity. Now, that is also the same ending from what I understand. Again, have not read the book. But that is the same ending as uh, the book. However, in the book, the rain does not happen, which, first of all, once it goes from a long time of not raining and then it rains really heavy, the ground's not going to absorb any of it. That's just science right there. B, the rain doesn't happen in the book because Paul becoming a deity in the book is more in the social sense of like his relationship with the people. He's a deity in more of a symbolic sense. He is enlightened, he is incredibly wise and kind and just, and he holds a lot of power, but he's not God. He can't just call rain forth upon an entire planet. That fundamentally ruins the message of the book because the book is about the dangers that that type of influence and that type of power and symbolism a society can have. Because as the books will go on, Paul being deified as a god by the people, because the people view him as a god in this, that launches holy wars and in doing so causes harm to the universe. So it's about the downfalls of a, of, a, of a society that deifies a person and the power that that br- and influence that brings. But in this movie, he just could fucking make rain because on the fucking third day, God made water. And that's cool ending. And that kind of ties into my fucking rant about this movie. You know, a lot of people say that Avatar is a white savior narrative, and it is. I feel like we need to be nicer to Avatar because it's got nothing on this movie. This is the biggest white savior narrative I've ever seen. With all the problems that come with that, it's about a dude from a modern society who knows how to fight. He goes to those natives and he becomes their deity. It's such a white savior that, again, the sequel is called Dune Messiah. And... 
like you said, we haven't read the books. I have people say that the sequel that does not exist is about why him becoming a white savior and people worshipping him is bad and is like a deconstruction. But without that, with this bare bones themes, he's just, hey, I showed up, I taught those dumb natives how to be smart, and now I'm their god. Awesome. I'm Paul. I, I, I don't really have much emotion ever in this movie. No, not at all. And absolutely. I mean, Denevil New has expressed interest. I mean, Dune Part 2 is being made and being filmed next July. Villeneuve has also said that as soon as he's done with that, he wants to adapt Dune Messiah. Ooh, interesting. So this, hopefully, hopefully, to anyone and everyone listening to this, please go support Dune so that we get this. Hopefully, this franchise will have that adaptation of the mostly negative side of that white savior archetype deconstruction if and when they adapt Dune Messiah. But yeah, absolutely, you're right. In this one, it's just the white guy coming to save the natives. And the natives are all white in this movie as well. Yeah, so. it's it's still a white savior if they're white people. Oh yeah, no, I'm not... I'm I not, know, I know, I'm it's just... Weird. He's Jake Sully. He's Jake Sullying this shit. Yep. This movie, it's more than just bad. It is insane bad. Like, you know, it is crazy. A lot of the time on this show, I have said that I prefer a big swing and a miss to a film that's bad by playing it safe. But this isn't really a big swing and a miss. It's swung the bat 10 seconds after the ball went past the plate with enough force that the bat flew out of your hands into the stands and killed a child. That's how big of a miss this is. It's just awful. I can appreciate that they tried to adapt this massive book into this science fantasy epic, but oh my god, tried is the operative word because there is no conceivable way you could consider this a success. Not at all, by any stretch of the imagination. It's just baffling how so many talented people came together with so much talent, passion, and money, and time to make this. And it just is so horrendously bad. Like, no wonder David Lynch disowns this movie. I mean, it's a good thing that it happened because he and Kyle MacLachlan would later go on to frequently collaborate, mostly just on Twin Peaks, which is one of the most beloved television series of all time. And the production teams, not this version, from canceled versions, would later go on to do other productions like Alien. And there was even a version of it that got so close to happening that they even made a documentary about what that movie would have been like. This movie, no one talks about it. And for good reason. It is really bad. I mean, my my dad, when my father, when he heard that they're making a new Dune movie, he said he refused to see it. And again, this was like a year or two ago. He refuses to see it because the last one was so bad. That's how bad this movie is. People, I know, it ruined their perspective on this story. And that sucks because this story is an incredibly best-selling, beloved novel from the 60s. And again, so much talent. Max von Sydow, David Lynch, Kyle MacLachlan, Patrick Stewart, all these people 
what else? The women are completely treated like shit in this. All they do is serve the men, whereas in the books, from what I understand, they are actually like strong badasses, like Rebecca Ferguson and Zendaya. Honestly, I cannot wait until this weekend when I have enough time to watch the new Dune because goddamn, I need this story to be told good. Honestly, I might just do it tonight. I need good Dune in my life because this Dune is so awful. I think it's one of the worst movies we've seen on this show. Certainly the worst movie ever made by Lynch, the worst to feature Patrick Stewart and Max von Sydow that I've ever seen. It's just awful in every way. What's crazy to think here, there are in total like five different adaptations of this series. So there's the 84 one, there's, there's 84. the Children of Doom miniseries. There's there is a Dune adaptation made in 2000 straight to the sci-fi channel. Then there is a sequel to that called Children of Dune, which I believe is the third adaptation. There's the There's movie with Oscar Isaacs and Timothy Chalamet from this year, and what's the fifth one? That documentary I told you. Oh about. right, the Jodorowsky's Dune, and somehow, somehow, the two straight to TV sci-fi channel adaptations are better than this. Well, honestly, I feel like this would have benefited from being a miniseries, just oh, yeah. having more time to tell out the plot. Honestly, I would have loved to have seen, had they not, had Villeneuve not adapted this in the big screen, I would have loved for this to have been adapted like Game of Thrones, like an HBO series where they just adapt the entire six book series into however many seasons. And hopefully in an alternate reality where they did that, hopefully they didn't fuck it up like they did the Game of Thrones ending, but that's a conversation for another day. Yeah. So just to close out this review, what score are you gonna give this? Honestly, it's so poorly made. I'm, I'm conflicted by it because I'm so poorly made, but it also comes at it from this perspective. I'm also coming at it from this perspective of at least I'm going to remember it, you know? But then again, I'm also like, wait, I watched it within the last 24 hours. Do I really remember a whole lot from it? Honestly, it's just weird, bizarre, forgettable. There's some interesting looking. I'll give it that. The costumes, I think, are the only good thing about it. Honestly, this movie was just wasted potential, and it came out after the third Star Wars movie, so this could have been great. It was at a time when science fantasy epic action movies were at their peak, and with an incredibly talented cast, crew, and directing, and production team, and it all just fails in this mess of an adaptation that Frank Herbert liked. He did? Yeah, mostly because it was just a montage of his stuff brought to the big screen. So we went from doing the masterpiece of a Shining adaptation that the author hated to this shit stain that the author's like, actually, I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of James Cameron being interviewed for Terminator Genesis, where he basically was like, he's seen the movie before it came out. For those of you who don't know, the movie is horrible. Horrible. 
but James Cameron was on the campaign trail for it, and he goes, yeah, I've seen it, and I really love it. I think this is going to be a great addition to this franchise. But then the movie came out, and it was horrible, and all these years later, you look back to those interviews, and you listen to the stuff he's saying. He basically says, he specifies that the stuff he liked is that they redid what he did. Like, scene for scene, like, went back in time and did his scenes over again. So he basically just liked what he did. So that's what that reminds me of. But anyway, last week, critically acclaimed, author hates it. This one, critically panned, author loves it. I'm gonna give it a 3 out of 10. This movie is bad. Bad, 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 bad. But at least, as you said, it is a massive, massive, hilarious overstep. And for nothing else, I had fun at parts, but the rest is really fucking boring. I don't know, it had a nice soft rock song during the credits. Oh yeah, Toto, like the Africa band, they yeah, did yeah. the music for this. Yeah, it had Toto on there. I like Toto. God bless the rains that Paul and Trey is made, which means that he is Jesus. I don't know, I can't sing. Four out of ten, this movie's shit. It's abysmal. It's incomprehensible garbage. It's just a random collection of scenes that aren't tied together, that don't make sense, that don't form a cohesive narrative or give you a reason to care about anything that's happening. And the guy that made Eraserhead couldn't make that work. Like, I just like to throw it out there. The guy that made Eraserhead, and what was his other movie? Uh, Rabbits. He just made this 40-minute stop-motion animated short film about rabbits in an apartment watching TV, and on occasion, some weird, creepy shit would happen in the background. I don't know, when you think of David Lynch bizarre and weird and incomprehensible, you either think of something good or compelling like a racer head, or something just horrendous like Doom. It is crazy to me that he came off of Eraserhead and The Elephant Man, did this, and then two years later did Blue Velvet, one of his best movies. Sorry, David, love you, man, but I agree with you. This movie is horrible. Well, hey, David Lynch didn't direct this. It was Alan Spivey. Yeah, yeah. And he did uh, Hellraiser 4. As yeah, well. Alan Spivey, very prolific director. Yeah, as it turns out, he just, yeah, makes a lot of shit movies. I mean, but hey, he's been doing this from 1968. He's getting up there. Yeah, I mean, the only good thing to come out of this, I don't know, the sandworm designs are kind of cool. Yeah, they have mouths that open in three places. That's weird. So next week, we're going to be continuing the theme of garbage. No better way to put it. Because we're doing a Batman movie, but not a good Batman movie. Honestly, there are a lot of not great Batman movies. Like the Dark Knight trilogy is really good. I think the Burton movies are okay. I think Batman v Superman, at least in the cut we watched, is okay. Batman Forever is bad. Batman and Robin. Oh boy, it, it's not good. And I'm excited to finally watch it. <laughs> you haven't seen that one ever. Nope. Fair, I haven't seen it in like eight years. Maybe it's a masterpiece and... We're just too ignorant to see that. Yeah, yeah. It featured the best, most comics-accurate portrayal of Bane. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it took Mr. Freeze, that quiet, intellectual villain who is just such a tragic character and they chose the best dramatic actor Arnold Schwarzenegger to play him. Riley, where can they find more about this show? You can find more about the show on YouTube, TikTok, 
Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Silver Age Silver Screen, where we post updates to the show and movie news in addition to that. You can all find me on TikTok and Instagram at Riley James Thorpe. And you can also find me on Twitch at Riley James Thorpe. I stream every Saturday at noon central time. And you can find me on YouTube at Riley Thorpe, where you can check out all my short films and whatnot on there. You can find me on Twitter at Jarms Casey, J-A-R-M-E-S-C-A-S-E-Y. Hey, you like deserts and giant worms eating people? I fucking love that shit. Well, check out Hell of a Game. That happened on that show that I host. It's a D&D podcast I'd make with some friends of mine about a big old race in hell. We just finished up the first story, actually... We will have finished it up by the time this episode comes out. Yes, we will have. Check it out. Hell of a game. It's a podcast I do. We'll be back next week, assuming we don't get given a cat with a rat duct tape to it that we have to milk for the antidote, which apparently, just looking it up real quick, isn't in the book. That's, that's Lynch's idea. As always, I'm Casey Jarms. And I... And hey, it's just a movie. Don't lose your head about it, especially not to a ladder.